Good morning. Man, uh, I was uh, watching football yesterday, and uh, my team lost, but that's all right. And, uh, but where I live right now, it's snowing. <clears throat> and you where I grew up, it's not here. Let me just say, that is a good thing for me. I have learned, to, I've gotten a week since I've moved to California, man. I'm like, I went back to speak at this thing in Montana just a little while ago, and oh my goodness, I forgot how cold it gets, like where there's like mountains and stuff. It was like, I was, I look at my wife, because she grew up in Montana, and I just go, we're getting a week. And she goes, I know. And I said, but I can't wait to get home to California, you know, so, but, uh, my name is Todd Neiswanger. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, it's, if you're here for the first time, it's great having you. If you're here for more than your first time, it's good to have you too. Um, but uh, last week, Francis let us know that we're going to start going through the book of James. And when he and I were talking about teaching through it together, I was so excited. I absolutely love the book of James. James is a man that uh, I've spent some time studying in church history just to learn about this guy. And this guy absolutely blows me away. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Talk about a resume. Oh, if Jesus were my half-brother, I'd be like, Hi, my name's Todd. You might know my brother, Jesus. <laughs> Walked on water. I mean, he literally, this is who he was. He was the half-brother. You know, you'd think he'd start off the letter, you know, this is James, half-brother of Jesus, from the sacred womb of Mary. I mean, that's what you thought he would have said. But the amazing thing that he does in James 1.1 is he says, James, a bond slave of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of my brother. That's what I am. That's what I've chosen to be. And he doesn't say it because he felt like he had to. When, when Francis talked about it, this bond slave was someone that chose to make himself this because he believed slavery to Jesus Christ is better than anything else that can be offered. And I know in our culture, that's just a weird thought. It, it doesn't make sense. And as you read James, the one thing you're going to understand is a lot of this stuff to our culture does not make sense. He's going to write things that are going to be like, what in the world? I mean, there's several times I'll read the book of James, and I'll just give you, this one's for free, okay, here this morning. James reads like it was written like a woman. Now, I don't say that to demean. I just mean, maybe demeaning towards men. If you ever get together and talk to men, it's like, how you doing? Good. How's life? Good. What are you doing tomorrow? Nothing. Hey, that's great. Have a good day. All right. But when I get together with my wife, or I listen to her and her friends talk, oh my goodness. Hi, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Everything been good? Hey, yeah, so what are you doing today? Well, my husband and I, we're going to go over to In-N-Out. Oh my gosh, I was driving by In-N-Out. You wouldn't believe it. On Stearns, you know what I'm talking about? I was going back around and I saw 24 hours. And speaking of 24 hours, isn't it crazy? That's what one day lasts is 24 hours. And didn't my kid cry over and over for 24 hours? Speaking of kids, did you see that sale over at Gymboree? Oh yeah, Gymboree. Speaking of the gym, I went over to 24-Hour Fitness. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> And the thing about James is that's what it's going to feel like. You're going to be reading it and he's going to be like, oh, and by the way, and by the way, and by the way, and by the way, and by the way. And you're just like, that's why, and again, he's a man. Maybe he was just really in touch with his feminine side. I don't know. (laughs) But I want to make a couple things really crystal clear as we start this study of James. The one thing that I want to make sure that you know Francis and I are not saying is this. 
You're going to hear good works over and over and over, and you will not be hearing us say, you come to Christ or you get saved by works. You are not saved by works. And Paul wrote letter after letter after letter telling us over and over again, you are not saved by works. So if you think at any point in our conversation or our preaching through this book of James, you hear, oh, am I saved by works? No. Salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. That's it. Okay, now... Here's what, I, here's what we are going to be saying. Now, let me make this crystal clear. You're going to hear good works a lot because James wants you to know faith without works is dead. You cannot have faith without works. The two, the two go together. It's like going to a movie. Can you imagine if you took a torn stub up to the guy and said, here you go, it's half a stub. He'd be like, he already went to the movie. Literally what happens is faith and works are combined together by God in that when I come to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, I am a new creation. I'm changed. The old Todd is, is, is being done away with and the new Todd is being renewed and, and made into something new so that now what's coming out of him are good works. Now in Ephesians 2, Paul writes this little thing in, in 2, 8 through 10 and probably a lot of you have memorized. He said, look, for by grace you've been saved through faith. You're saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that what? So that we can't boast. My salvation, I can't earn it. I can't do enough good things to earn my salvation. But then he says this amazing thing. He says, we are God's workmanship after that in verse 10. We're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we would walk in them. I am saved, and out of my salvation will come good works. Go with me to Titus. Let me show you this one. Titus, chapter 2. Ooh, I'm reading upside down. You guys would have been impressed if I could do that. He can't preach, but he can read upside down. Titus 2. Now look at verse 11. Paul writes to this pastor on the island of Crete. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who He gave Himself for us, He died for us, that... He might redeem us or buy us out of the sinful slave market so that we might become this bond slave that James talks about. He redeems us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. He's going to own us now. And look at this word, zealous, crazy for, going after good works. God saves us for the purpose that he doesn't want us just to come to Christ and sit on earth and bide our time until heaven. See, so often when I hear the gospel preached, it's like, come to Jesus and you'll go to heaven, which is a, trust me, a big time bonus. But he didn't just save us to sit on the earth and bide our time. He saved us, it says, for his own possession that we might be a people zealous for good works. Now, go with me back a page, maybe, in your Bibles to Titus 1, 15. Because there's two distinct people. There's these people that have been saved that are zealous for good deeds. And then there's some in verse 16, actually, let's go there, that profess to know God, 
but by their deeds, by their works, they actually deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good work. See, the mark of a Christian, now listen, the mark of a Christian when we are saved is that the natural byproduct of our salvation is that we do good works. Now, they're not my good works. I'm going to talk about that here later in James. But the natural byproduct is is that I start to do good works. I am a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that I would walk in them. If there aren't works in your life, I'm not calling you unsaved, okay? Today, listen to me. I'm saying, though, you better look very closely at your own life and ask, why are there no good works in my life? Because somehow in the Bible, John 15, Jesus connects this idea that those that are His, that are He calls engrafted into the vine, that are a part of Him, they bear fruit. Those that don't bear fruit, it says they are taken and collected and thrown into the fire. Bad thought. And so as we sit here today, it is so important for us to understand this. When we talk about good works from the book of James, you can't earn your salvation. Paul didn't believe you could earn your salvation. But both of them believed that the outcome of my salvation was good works. Go with me to, uh, to uh, Matthew 5. Let me show you this for, from Jesus' perspective. Matthew 5. <clears throat> Verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works... And do what? And glorify your Father who's in heaven. See, there's two things that you're going to have to realize about you when you were saved. You were saved for good works so that people would see your good works, but that more importantly, they wouldn't see you, they would see God. God saved you and He keeps you here on this earth So that through your life, through what he's doing through you, as others watch you, they go, oh my gosh, there's something different in his life. What is different? And automatically you just go, that. One of the things that you're left here for is that. Make sure you understand this. Your life, you are saved so that your good works, how you've been changed by Jesus Christ, reflect in such a way that people see not you, but God. Now, in Philippians 1.6, go with me there real quick. Let me show you this. Not only that's, that's the first thing. Here's the second reason. Philippians 1.6. Paul, whenever he says, I'm confident of something, that means like bells and whistles should go off and lights should flash and thunder should go and lightning should go crazy. For I am confident of this very thing. That he, speaking of Jesus Christ, who began a good work in you, he's going to perfect it until Jesus comes back, the day of Christ Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus saved you. He started this work in you. And he's not going to stop till he's done. He's going to work on you and work on you and work on you. And go with me to Romans 8. You've got to see this. I know we're turning around a lot. So if you, if you have carpal tunnel... I'm sorry. He's going to work on you and work on you and work on you. And look at verse 28. And this is the confidence you can have. Not only is God 
doing these good works through you for His glory. But we know that God causes all things. Let me say this again. And we know that God causes all, 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 all things to work together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. That means every single thing that God does for those that love Him, that are called according to His purpose, is for our good. Everything. Everything that God does is for our good. Now, when things are good in our life, we're like, oh, amen, yeah. You should see my car, my house, my, my wife, she's hot. I got kids that are perfect. <sighs> my job is going well. And we're like, oh, yes, God causes all things to work together for good. Look at my life. But when things go south, do we believe that? Do we really in our gut believe that when things in our head are bad, we have a God that's saying, no, 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 no. Actually, you think things are bad, but in how I do things, they are very good. See, the one thing I've learned about my life is, is on March 19th, 1993, Jesus Christ radically transformed my life and he took a man that was wrecking everything, that was messing everything up, that was constantly putting things into his body to do things that he didn't sure what they were doing to him, but he didn't care. He was a stupid, arrogant jerk. Some of that hasn't changed, maybe. (laughs) And he changed me. He took what other people probably looked at and said, what a waste of flesh. And God said, ah. But I take what isn't and I make it what is. I take what everyone else looks as junk and I turn it into gold. See, the one thing that we've got to get into our heads, and especially when things are rough, when things get a little difficult, is that God is still in control and God is doing what He's doing. And in the final product, it's going to be good. Now go with me to James with that in mind. Last week, I thought Francis said a phenomenal, he asked a phenomenal question which really zeroes in on what James is going to be talking about. Francis asked this question. I wasn't here, but I listened to it on the podcast. He said this. Do you believe in your gut, would you rather have comfort than character? And I want to reshape that question a little bit. Would you rather have comfort what the world values Or would you rather have character what God values? Do you really in your life want what God values because you believe it brings Him the most honor, Him the most glory, and it is the best thing for you? Because as we enter the book of James, it is this attitude that James is talking about. Look at James 1. Look at verse 2. He says this amazing statement. He says, Consider it all joy. That word consider means to think about it. We might name a DVD after this. It means just stop and think. It means before you do anything, stop and consider. Mull it over. And it's in what's called the aorist imperative, which I know means nothing to you, but in the Greek what it means is, is make your mind up right now and here. Make your choice today. Don't wait to make it later. And we're going to talk about why this is so important not to make up your mind on this later. It is using your mind in such a way that you really, really believe everything we've just talked about that ultimately God has saved me for good works that bring Him the most honor that are best for me. 
Because as we look at trials, I have got to believe that or you're going to go insane. And he says, consider it what? Pure joy. All joy. Oh, Now think about this. That seems highly irrational, doesn't it? Because he's about ready to confine joy with trials. That's an oxymoron in most people's heads. That's like jumbo shrimp. Pretty ugly. Military intelligence. Just kidding. Some of the military guys are like, boy, I'll show you intelligence. It's this whole idea in our head, it doesn't make sense. How in the world could James combine joy and trials? And not only that, but the whole point is, is I want you to consider it joy before you come to a trial. Literally, before you enter into this, I want you to consider it, to think about it, to make up your mind today that you will carry joy into your trials because you know, and it's this ability, now he's going to talk about, to look through my trials to the other side. See, the question I want to ask you guys today, do you really believe God is going to use your trials, which seems so bad to you, and he's going to turn them into gold? Character. And do you really believe character is the best thing for you? See, that's the thing that has to be asked. Because afterwards, he says, look, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. Now, if there's one thing that I could remove, actually, if I could reshape this verse, there's two things. Now, I'm not going to rewrite scripture. Please don't write an email to me. I'm just saying, if I could, there's this sneaky, nasty side of me that wishes I could do two things to this passage. I wish I could say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you avoid trials of various kinds. You know what I'm saying? And those of us, especially in the United States, we are master avoiders of trials. We're good at it. But the other word I wish I could change, look in verse 1. See that word when? I'd love to change it to if. So it's more like if you experience trials, not when. See, if states, if's kind of like, well, we don't know if it's going to happen, but it might, but it might not. When is like, homeboy, it's coming. Right? And as I talk to some of you today, let me, let me clarify everything, because I don't want you to think I'm going to teach this heartless or cruel. I really know there's people in this room today that are going through difficult trials. I know it. See, there's either those that are in them, that just came out of them? Or those of you sitting here right now with that thing going, oh yeah, poor people, let me tell you, or are going into them. We're always in this state, because we live in a fallen world, all of us will go through trials. And James is going to, he's coming in, he's not saying if you experience trials. It's not that I can all of a sudden suddenly go, huh, I wonder. It's like, look, The reason you need to make up your mind today what you're going to do and how you're going to face this trial is because you are going to have trials. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then he uses this word in here, encounter, or or enveloped by, or fall upon you. It's it's used out of Luke 10 when it talks about the, the Good Samaritan and this guy's on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem and it says robbers fell upon him. They encountered him. If, you were, if I were to take you and push you off a boat into the water, that's how the Greeks used it. It was this idea that suddenly, as you land in the water, water completely envelops you. See, it's like with trials, not only do I not have a choice of timing, 
But it's also that amazing thing. Have you ever noticed how they just envelop you? You get into a hard time, you wake up, and what do you think about? Your trial. When you're standing there brushing your teeth, you think about your trial. When you're on your way to work commuting, you think about your trial. When you get to work, you think about your trial. When you're eating lunch, you think about your trial. When you come home, you're thinking about your trial. And then you finish your day and you're laying on your bed, staring at the ceiling, and you're thinking about your trial. And just so everybody knows, you can't avoid trials and you can't schedule trials. I know there's nothing more than I would love to do than go, wow, God, whew, bad week. <laughs> Let me get out my day timer just a second. You know, two weeks, my mother-in-law is going to be here. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. <laughs> but see, when I think that way, what I'm saying to God is, I'm saying, God, I am smarter than you and I know what's best for me. See, there's something about this amazing, loving God that He understands that these trials are going to be the best thing for us. And He knows the exact right time to bring them in. Doesn't He? I mean, it was so funny. I'm sitting here studying for this and, I, and I, my, my wife, she, uh, I, I go home, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to go home and study. I'm going to get out of the office. No phone calls, no anything. I'm just going to have time to just devote myself to studying this passage. And so I get home and my wife looks at me and she lied to me. She says, I need to step out. I'm going to leave the babies with you. They're sleeping. They probably won't wake up. Liar. (laughs) No sooner had she closed the door, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is beautiful. Dear Lord, as I prepare this message to wow the crowds and draw attention to me. No, as I... I'm just sitting there going, wow, look, and I'm studying, and then all of a sudden I hear, you know that like cat sound that only an infant makes? We got a new five-week-old in our home from just a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, she has this soft cry, but she, she won't quit. And so I'm thinking, okay, one kid's no problem. So I grab my notes, you know, and I've got the baby, and I'm like doing this, going, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, we've also not only got a five-week-old, but we have an 11-week-old in our home. And it never fails. And that same cat sound comes out of a different room. And I'm sitting there going, I go grab him. And if you had had a camera there, I've like got both of my arms doing this, you know, and going, God, this is the terrible bad time. I'm trying to study. I'm trying to help your people really understand who you are. This is the worst time of all. And God must be going, no, you don't understand. This is the best time. And it's always those times, trust me. And the reason that I need to consider it all joy is because we don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, could you imagine if you you knew you were going to get murdered? Well, you wouldn't be there. (laughs) But the beauty of trials is, is God doesn't give us a heads up. As a loving father, he knows then we would like clear our schedule. We'd make it as cushion, as easy as possible so that when a trial comes, it would be the best time. And then really, then it's not the best time. And he says, I want you to consider it now. Because listen, you won't find joy in trials. I heard a guy say that one time. You don't find joy in trials. You consider it all joy before and you take joy with you into the trials. There's a huge difference. And if you don't have joy before you go on the trial, don't expect to find joy in the trial. 
It never fails. I can always tell the person that has considered it joy before the trial comes because they ask me to pray for them differently. See, one person says, gosh, Todd, I don't even know how to tell you to pray for me. The other one says, Todd, help me get out from my trial. Because they really don't believe that trial God is going to take and turn into gold. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, knowing. Knowing. It's this Greek word, gnosko. It means experientially, you know this to be true. You know that when hard things are brought at you, it makes you tougher, he's going to talk about. You know it in your head. You know that the testing of your faith is going to produce something. Now that word testing is so good here, and I don't want you to miss this. It's this Greek word, the kimion, which literally what it was is it spoke of a silversmith. A silversmith would get this big block of silver ore and he would take it and he would put it into, into a, a big container. Generally it was of, of, a, of a metal, a very uh, uh, dense metal, or it was also a ceramic. And they would put it in there and they would start to turn up the heat. And as they turned up the heat in that jar over and over and over, suddenly that, that silver began to melt. And as it began to melt, it turned into like a spongy liquid. And as you kept turning up the heat, suddenly to the surface would begin to boil all the impurities to the top of it. And that master silversmith, would duck, he would take a, 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 a tool that would draw it across the top of it and he would take all the, the stuff that was bad and wipe it away. And then he would let it cool for 24 hours. Then he would the next morning come back in, stoke up that fire, get it hot, and he would wait for it to get, to get liquid and spongy and to the top again would come impurities, and he would drag it across. Now the test that he would do on it, this dakimion, this testing was, is he would stand over the top of this silver liquid, and he would look down into it. And he knew that the more and more he began to see his reflection in that silver, the purer and purer the silver became. And so when James is talking about testing, literally God comes into our life, He lights the fire underneath us, and as He lights the fire, what comes to the surface bubbling is the impurities. It's the sin in our life. All of us talk about, man, I wish I could get rid of sin in my life. Okay, how about trials? Ooh, not there. Wrong thoughts about God come to the surface. All these things that are so not going to help you live a, good, a life of good works that bring glory to God and are best for you, God, as this gentle silversmith begins to heat things up in your life and as these impurities come, he wipes them and wipes them and the thing he's looking for is standing over you and he's going to look until he sees his own face. He wants to see himself in you. See, that's the beauty of this. He wants to see Him in you. That's why He's walking through this. He wants to see what's called holiness. He wants you to be like Him. Peter talks about be holy for God is holy. Uh, Matthew talks about in Matthew 5, this thing be perfect as God is perfect. How in the world do I do it? The only way that you will become like Christ is through trials. That's it. The only means that which God can begin to get those impurities to the surface in our life is through trials and then begin to wipe them away. And then what starts to happen? He uses this word endurance or perseverance. This word endurance is, is this, it comes from this Greek word hupomone, which means hupo is, is, is to, un, is means word under, and this moni is the idea of stand. Literally, as these pressure of trials come down me, I am able to stand under it and hold the weight. I'm able to, as more and more weight is put upon me, I stand under it. 
Now, everybody's inclination when things get hot is to run. And James is looking at us and saying, don't run. Stay there. Stay there. Now, when people come into my office and they're like, things are rough, man. You've got to help me out. Now, can you imagine? I've never done this yet. Now nobody's going to want to come to me. Todd, could you pray, you know, that this trial would end? And I look at him and I go, let's pray. God, make the trial hotter and last longer. Amen. And then I'd run like crazy. (laughs) Why? Because I really do believe that James is saying here and God is saying, in your trials, as you go through them, I am going to make you tough. I'm going to make you tough. This is what this word endurance means. I'm going to make you tough. Is life hard? Yes. Life is hard. There's divorce and death. There is fighting and anger. There's all these things going on. And a gracious God and a gracious Savior says, I'm going to come in and not only am I going to make you holy, I'm going to make you tough. I'm going to make you be able to handle what's going on in this hard world. See, unbelievers don't have this privilege. You ever thought about that? They go through their trials for nothing. What do they get out of it? Nothing. The perk of you and I being a believer in Jesus Christ is I have this, this gracious and gentle silversmith that's going, oh, Todd, you wouldn't believe what I'm doing in your life. As things are hard, I'm making you more and more like my son, Jesus Christ. And as I make you more and more like my son, Jesus Christ, I'm making you tough like my son so that you can handle the realities of life. I'm changing you, Todd. And then look what he does down here. Verse 4. And he says, And let endurance stay there. Don't move. I know everything in you is telling you run. But let it have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can you imagine if for their whole life you treated your child like an infant and how gross that would be? Your kid never learned, didn't potty train, didn't learn to talk. And as they move along in life, you keep holding them on your lap. I mean, I couldn't imagine my mom, who's about 4'11", saying, Todd, come over here, sit on my lap. I'd squash her. But see, in the Christian life, we avoid it. We don't want to grow. In fact, there's studies shown that when you hold your kid too much, it actually doesn't help them. You're supposed to, I mean, there is a good side of holding them. But they've got to learn to sit up, don't they? They've got to learn to walk. They've got to learn to crawl. They've got to learn to do all these things that normal human beings go through. And what this is talking about is this word, if you look down in there, perfect, is you're going to grow up. The purpose of trials is so that you'll grow up. And then that word mature, or I mean complete, or sometimes it's, a, it's translated as a fulfilled, is this idea that you don't lack anything. I, I love going to the gym. And seeing the dudes that have the moss, the massive upper bodies and they wear sweats. What that means, just so everybody knows, next time you're at 24-hour fitness or wherever you're at, they've got skinny legs. <laughs> That's what it means. Now some guy's going to see me at 24-hour fitness this week and go, oh, yes, look at this. <laughs> Squash my head with his legs. See, they look funny. Like one time, I'll never forget, I saw a guy that was lifting, man, he had this massive upper body, he's cranking weight, I'm like, dang, I'm going to be like you. And then he took off his sweats, and I was like, ooh. 
This perfect and mature side is see a really good trainer, a really good coach will come in and go, oh man, those legs are skinny. We gots to do something. And they'll begin to work on your legs. Will it hurt? Oh, I hadn't lifted for a little while. I did lunges. I couldn't sit down right. Does it hurt? Yes. And what God does in our life with his x-ray vision like only God can, looking through our soul and our heart, peering into who we are, he goes, Todd, I found a weak spot. And it's time to work it out. And this gentle shepherd comes into my life and he makes me stronger in that spot. And he gets done with that and he goes, Oh, Todd, I found another weak spot. Does it hurt? Oh, does it hurt? It hurts like crazy. See, the one thing that I used to hate in athletics, when I was in seventh grade, I had this coach, and he had this voice like this. And I hated at the end of the practice when he said, get on the line, which, a.k.a. what that means, run, we're going to run. And you're like, what? No, I'm playing basketball. If I wanted to run, I would have done track, man. We're playing basketball. But he would get us on that line, and we would run, and we would run, and we would run. Why? Because he knew we were little fat, out-of-shape seventh graders that needed to do something with our life, you know? He was a dude that was one of those rat, the tunnel rats in the Vietnam War. He'd tell me stories that I'd go home crying at night. <laughs> but suddenly, as I ran more and more and more and more, you wouldn't believe this, but actually when I got into high school, track became my sport. Not only did track become my sport, but I got a scholarship to go run a Division I school. And it was like, why? Because way back when, I had this coach that knew what I needed to do more than anything. I needed to get into shape. I needed to work on something. And as I worked on it, I became better and better and better at it. Now listen to me. If you enter trials not believing that on the other side of it, God is going to do something incredible, you will not become better. You will become bitter. You won't become better, you'll become bitter. Because you're looking at God and saying, Why God? Why now? Why me? Instead of going, Oh my goodness God, I don't know how to go through this, but I trust you that this is best for me. That means better, not bitter. Go with me to Romans 5. Let me show you something. Romans 5, verse 3. And not only this, but we exult, we're joyful, we're excited in our tribulations, in our trials, knowing that trials and tribulations bring about perseverance. There's that word, hupomone, to stand under. They make me stronger. And in making me stronger, perseverance... It gives me proven, here's this word Francis asked last week, character. And proven character brings hope. And look at this word. And hope does not disappoint. Isn't that incredible? See, this whole thing is he's leading us towards something that on the other end of our trial, what he's going to give us is hope. Now we'd say, oh, who cares, Todd? (sighs) Hope? That's it? Let me show you something. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 3. Paul writes this. He says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Now that word work of faith is what's called a subjective genitive in Greek, meaning you should translate it this way. 
constantly bearing in mind your faith, which produces works, which is what James talks about, and your labor of love, which we will translate your love, which produces labor. And your, here's our word, hupomone, your toughness of hope, which we should be, which hope produces more toughness. Can I show you what happens in this amazing brilliance of what Jesus is doing and what God is doing in our life? He says, trust me, you come into this with joy, come into it with hope that on the other side is going to be something incredible. And as you come in with it, all of a sudden God comes in and he adds fire to our life and he brings trials and he brings impurities to the surface. He makes us holy. He proves our character. He makes us tough. And as he makes us tough, he gives us hope. And as he increases our hope, the next trial that comes along, guess what? We're stronger and more able to handle the next trial. And as we handle the next trial, he again puts us through, brings impurities to the surface. He brings us, gives us proven character. Proven character gives us toughness. Toughness then comes back up and it gives me hope. And my hope increases. My view of God increases. And I really then begin to believe more and more. It's just like God said that I can trust Him in my trials, that what He's doing in my life is running me through this amazing process to make me more holy and stronger and able to hope more and more, which what happens is the book of James This increases my faith. Francis preached a message three weeks ago that I'll be honest with you, I'm still licking my wounds. And he talked about this idea of this person that was lukewarm. The only way to not be lukewarm is with trials. Trials takes and it goes, listen, you're lukewarm? Let me help you there. And God comes into our life and helps us in our lukewarmness and he, he turns up the heat and as He turns up the heat, all the impurities that made us lukewarm come to the surface and He drags it across. And what comes out of it? This character, this holiness that then leads to toughness which then my hope in God increases and then I get hotter and hotter and hotter and I'm not this lukewarm one that's going to be spit out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. See, none of us want to be lukewarm but when I say to you, trials are the means by which Jesus makes us non-lukewarm, you're like, ooh, how about next week? It's this thing that goes on and it's just this idea that, G- that he talked about in Revelation 3, this overcomer, this hupomone person, this person that stands up, this one that overcomes it, is this one that God as a loving father goes, look, I'm going to put you into trials, but watch what I do with them. And I know a lot of you might be sitting there right now and going, Todd, that's not me. Go to verse 5. What do I do, Todd? If you, ask, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to men generously and without reproach, <clears throat> and it will be given to him. Ask God. Now, does that mean that something, you know, woo, mystical is going to suddenly, you're going to go, oh, I feel all better. No. God has this amazing ability to, to get you in the right passages of Scripture that help walk you through this passage, that bring you in, in, in line with the right person to help walk you through this. But this wisdom, now listen to me. It is a wisdom that increases your attitude, that helps your attitude, that gives you joy in going through the trial. It's not wisdom to escape your trial. That's not what it's talking about here. The wisdom that he's talking about is you're looking at God and saying, God, I want to run. I want to get out of this. I don't want to deal with it. Help me. And he gives you endurance. And he gives you the strength to stand under it. 
The reason I don't like prayer meetings very much is because I show up and everybody's praying that God will take them out of the fire. God, help my corns. Help get rid of them, God. Well, Mrs. Johnson, you're cantankerous and mean, so I'm going to pray more corns for you. God, help my kids not to be so bad. God, help her kids to be so bad that she finally does something about her kids. I'm kidding. But can you imagine if we changed our prayer life that way? Instead of going, help me get out from underneath it, we started to say, because what you're saying when help me get out from underneath it, you're saying to God, God, you don't know what you're doing. And I need out from underneath it. God, you're not smart. I'm smart. Now get me out of here. And God is saying, no, no, no. Stay in there. Hang in there. Don't move. Don't move. And he teaches us then to hold on to hope. And hope leads to endurance. And endurance leads to character. And character leads to toughness. And toughness leads to hope, which leads to more toughness, which is just this thing. He's saying, ask me for it and I'll give it to you. But the problem, verses 6 through 8, if you look down here, this person in 6 through 8 is this double-minded man that says, no, 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 yes, 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 no, 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 okay, I'll trust you, God, no, I won't, yes, I will, no, I won't. I mean, I see those people, when they come into my office, have you ever been surfing, and you go to catch a wave, and you're too late, and it just turns you, doesn't it? And you're sitting there, and you don't know which way is up. And I see people come into my office, they're this thing that James is talking about, this person that just turned and turned and turned. But the person that says, God, help me, that endures under the trial, is that person that hangs on to God because he believes at the end of this trial is something good. That person is the one that's stable and able to last through it. He also comes to verses 9 through 11. And I don't have time to unpack it for you. But the issue there is this. Don't think, number one, if you're someone that doesn't have money, oh, if I only had more money, trials would be easier. <clears throat> If you're someone that has money, which by the way, in comparison to the rest of the world, every single one of us in this room are filthy rich. So that, this is applying to now us. Don't think you have enough money to forego your trial. I can't think just because I've gone through seminary, somehow I'm exempt from trials. In fact, because I've been through seminary, God's going to go, all right. You've got a lot of knowledge that hasn't been turned into action called wisdom. And so Todd, it's time to jump in the furnace. See, the wisdom that he's talking about is this ability to take all of this head knowledge and make it work. That's wisdom. Wisdom is this thing of looking at my trials and knowing what to do. Now, I know some of you are in trials. Job, man, can you imagine when Job, some of you have read Job. And, and, and in this story, it's just a phenomenal story. He, it, comes, it starts off and Satan has been traveling around the world and he shows up in front of God and, and, and God goes, Hey, have you seen my, seen my servant Job? Now, can you imagine if Job was there? What are you talking about? That's God, no! Have you seen my wife? And then into Job's life come trials. <clears throat> and trials. Satan comes back again and God goes, have you seen my servant Job? And he goes, yeah. And Satan goes out and tries him some more. And Job does well. In fact, at one point, Job's wife actually tries to help him escape. She says, curse God and die. Great advice. In other words, what she's saying is, Job, get out from underneath it. He called her a silly woman, which is good. Well, isn't it interesting God never told Job what he was doing? 
See, one of the worst questions you can ask God is why. Why, God? Why me? Why now? It's a monster. Once you start that monster, it's hard to kill. The question not to ask in trials is why me? Why now? Why my kid? Why my wife? Because see, Job gets to the end and God never tells him why. He just says, Job... And he just unloads who he is as God because I'm God and I can do whatever I want because I know what's best for you and what's best for me. And Job, at the end of it, all Job can say is, wow, God, wow. Some of you are in trials. Some of you just came out of trials. You're in the cooling process of the silver. Some of you are about ready to go back in the fire. I want to take some time today just to pray. And if you've got somebody around you that you really like to pray with, pray with them. If not, pray by yourself. But here's what I'd like you to ask. Don't ask to be released from trials. Ask God for the wisdom to go through the trial. And if you don't believe on the other side is something good, then tell God, God, I'm struggling believing it's good. But take some time to pray. Take like three, three four minutes. I'm just going to give you and then I'm going to come back up here. So the next three, four minutes is all yours. Everybody in this room is going to go through trials. When you go through it with the right attitude, God accomplishes His purpose in your life. When you go through it with the wrong attitude, you've just wasted a trial, only to have a loving Father that will look back at you and say, it's time to go through it again. You know that kid that just never gets it? You tell them stop and they don't. Then you give them that gruff stop and they don't. The right attitude with trials changes everything. Do you in your guts really believe that God is going to take your trial and turn it into gold? I don't care if it's a sickness that's tragic. I don't care if it's struggling with kids. And by the way, pray for your kids' trials. Pray like crazy for them. Now the thing about it is, now listen to me. You pray trials for your kids, guess who goes with it, goes through it with them? But that must mean that God has something special for you on that other side. See, in, in, in Hebrews 12, he says, God disciplines those he loves. See, in verse 12 in, in Hebrews 1, it just says, Blessed is the man, happy, supremely joy is the man who perseveres, who hupomone under this trial of this master silversmith drawing off dross and looking in his face. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, the crown which is life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, in the midst of your trial, when things are painful, sometimes in the midst of pain, you can't hear that voice of God behind you saying, you're my kid. I'm doing this because I love you. The crown of life is yours. Momentary light affliction that burns up for yourself this amazing hope of heaven. But do you get it? We're children of God and we have a God that turns our hard times into gold. He's making us tougher. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you so much for this privilege that you give us to walk through trials. God, I know there are several people in our church that are going through various trials of all kinds. God, I pray that we would be a church that doesn't pray each other out of trials, but prays each other through trials. 
God, help us not to try to escape trials, but help us instead to seek you and get the strength that only you provide. God, help us to understand what Paul understood. In my weakness, you're strong. Please give us that insight. In your precious name we pray. Amen.